Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. On some level, I really don't want to give this sermon. And no, it's not about food. Um, for those of you who remember Yom Kippur. I've been thinking about this sermon for almost a year, but I delayed in writing it in a significant way. Because I don't really want to go there, but as a Jew who loves the text, as a conservative Jew who feels that the text and its evolving meaning holds high sanctity for us all, as a modern, egalitarian feminist, I sort of feel that I must give this sermon. At least to begin a conversation to break through some comfortable naivete and then hopefully to build out some meaning on the other side of rupture. Let me start with this. In this week's Parsha, Vayera, we witness and we properly wince at a painful scene when our matriarch, Sarah, after whom so many Jewish women have been named, convinces our patriarch, Abraham, Abraham, after whom so many Jewish men have been named, to evict Abraham and Sarah's Amma, or handmaiden, Hagar, after whom no Jewish people that I know of or have heard of have been named. Why? Because Sarah is jealous of Hagar, Sarah thinks that Hagar's son Yishmael is taunting Sarah's beloved and long-waited-for son Isaac. And the story is almost a cautionary tale for what not to do in a family. Hagar's forced departure from Avraham's home and tent in the middle of our Parsha, when the only adult home that she knows becomes inhospitable to her, it contrasts poignantly with the pshat and the extended midrashim of Avraham's legendary and laudatory hachnasat orchim, his commitment to welcoming others in his home, exemplified in the beginning of the Parsha, when the three strangers arrive with news. We witness Hagar being kicked out. We witness them languishing in the wilderness, she and her son abandoned and alone and afraid, and all by the hands of our ancestral parents. And I will submit, this scene represents a sorrowful nadir in Hagar's life. But I will also submit that it is by far not the worst thing that happens to Hagar in the biblical narrative. Let me take a step back. I started conceiving of this sermon or a class I might give on the topic last fall. COVID changed all of our regular patterns. Cooped up at home, the streaming services boomed. I hope you all bought stock in Netflix and Hulu and HBO in February 2020. I ended up binging a few shows, and one of them was Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. I actually subscribed to Hulu in order to watch it, as people had raved about it and for a while the billboards on the corner of Olympic and La Cienega were screaming about that show's next season. 
I had tried a few times over the years to read the book. Literature still beats media for me, at least for classics. But there was something about Margaret Atwood's style that stymied me. I tried and I tried, but try as I might, I just couldn't enter into the dystopian realm and finish that book. But Hulu's version with the extraordinary Elizabeth Moss, it grabbed me as of the first scene. Spoiler alert, there will be spoiler alerts in this sermon. To this day, I don't know how closely the show hews to the book. But what we have is the dystopian country of Gilead, formed from the ashes of some civil war in America, which had been plagued by low birth rates and a real concern for propagation of the species. The leaders of Gilead, inspired by a bizarre and terrifying bastardization of extreme Christianity, which is part Puritan, part hypermodest, at least for the women, and part downright oppression and militarism and murder, these male leaders essentially force potentially fertile women to be handmaids within the homes of the ruling class where the women are barren. So women are part of the ruling and the oppressive class, but women are the only ones oppressed, and their oppression is oppressive. The filmmaking holds, holds no bars. There's one set of scenes that repeats with painful and unvarnished realism as the ritual is performed. I'll keep it as PG-13 as possible unless there, in case there are some kids in the environment. The handmaid, who arrived in this situation by abduction, and who was a house servant by day, and essentially a sex servant by night, is forced to be intimate with the master of the house. Behind her is the master's wife. The handmaiden is essentially on her back at the wife's knees. The man's physical contact is with the handmaid, but it is clear that that act is on behalf of the barren wife. In the moment he is attempting to biologically conceive a child via the handmaid, in order to conceptually bear the child with his wife. And if a child is born, that's what happens. The child is the wife's child, not the handmaid's. These scenes are done terribly well, pun intended. They are terrible. I watch these scenes as a TV binger. And I watch these scenes as a Torah lover and a Brashid narrative fan and a protector of our holy inherited tradition. And I wept. Because as I watched Elizabeth Moss's character in that scene, I saw her face and I conjured others. I conjured Zilpa, handmaid to Leah, who wasn't even infertile. And I conjured Bilha, handmaiden to the barren Rachel. And I conjured Hagar, handmaiden in place of Sarah. For decades in my life and study, these women were ancillary characters in a holy text, at times pitiable, as when Hagar is alone in the wilderness. But at least in my conscious mind, I never saw them for what they really were and what was really done to them. Even handmaid is a dastardly euphemistic English term for the reality of a Hebrew ama. That word ama is fascinatingly close to aim, to mother, 
which is what they were expected to be if the man's wife couldn't be. But concubine gets closer to the meaning in English, and maybe better, sex slave in an unforgiving patriarchal society in which propagating the seed and family line was the relentless primary and primal familial task. Maybe that would be a brutal but truthful way of saying it. And so what was taking place in that scene in the TV show during the ritual? And what was really happening when Hagar lay with Avraham? I think we all know that that was the worst thing that happened to Hagar. I had a true panic attack when this hit me. How could I return to and teach and love and hold out as holy the book of Genesis and hold out as admirable our patriarchs and matriarchs with this ugliness peering out? It had always been there. I just had not seen it or chosen not to. And even the language of those relationships with the handmaid seems to be begging us to see it for exactly what it is. When Rachel, Rachel, incensed with envy over her fertile sister Leah, tries another route to produce a child for this family, the Torah describes it like this. Vatomer, Rachel said, Hine amati bilha. Here, take my handmaid, bilha. Bo'eleha, come into her. Vateled al-birkai, she will give birth on my knees. And I will be built up from her. Bilha in this scene is a thing given by a woman to her husband. Her body offered for intimacy as an incubator of seed. Her womb, but the family's child. It's a handmaid's tale indeed. And going back to Hagar, the language is similar. You feel for Sarah, you really do. She's getting older. She doesn't know that the prophecy of the three men is coming. She doesn't know that she'll laugh in joy. She fears utter obsolescence in that society. And she didn't create the society, so she's not individually responsible for its mores. But still, the words are harsh. Batomer Sarai el Avram, Sarai, her name was Sarai at the time, said to Avram, Here, God has prevented me from giving birth. Bona el Shifchati, why don't you come into my handmaid? Ulai ibane mimena. Ulai, perhaps, I will be built up from her. There's that word again, ibane. I will be built up from her or literally through her. Now, I want to give Sarah a hug in this moment. It is possible not to read this as Sarah the vicious slave driver. And for decades, I didn't read it that way. Sarah has suffered. There are expectations on her. She even says, Ulai, maybe, perhaps. She's tentative. She's uncertain. She doesn't know what's going to happen. And the Midrashim, the medieval commentaries, whose sense of societal mores are sort of in between the biblical ones and our more enlightened modern ones, they try to work through what is really being transacted in the moment. The word ibane can be related to build, bone. Rashi reads it as a brutal assessment of conditions of women's value back then. When she says, I will be built from her, it means that without that, without a child, she's nothing, as if she doesn't exist and has built 
nothing in her life. And Rachel knew that as before she gave a handmaid, she said to Jacob, Jacob, who loved her so much, but how long would that love persist without a child? She says, if she cannot be a mother, Azmeta Anochi, I am dead. That may not even be a metaphor. Sforno, an Italian commentator in the 16th century, seems to try to soften the moment, perhaps to keep our minds away from the handmaid's tale, as it were. He says, paraphrasing the Talmud, that the word ibanan means that Sarah hoped that by giving Hagar to Avram, her own jealousy, Sarah's jealousy, would increase, not decrease, but that somehow that increase of jealousy would stimulate her biology and allow her to conceive. So Hagar is still instrumentalized. She's still the Amah. But at least in this reading, Sarah is doing it so that she herself can one day play the role that she has to first make Hagar play. It's not pretty, but it's a bit better. And Ibn Ezra, a Spanish commentator and grammarian, maybe gets to the truest truth of the word, linking ibane, not to bone, meaning build, but more simply to ben, meaning son. As if Sarah's crying to the heavens, I regret having to do this. But this is the only way that I can ibane, the only way that I can produce a son for this family. Now, Midrash is masterful, but there's only so much that Midrash can do in texts like this. Much has been written in scholarship and in sermonica about so-called terror texts in our tradition. Narratives such as these. The laws in Kitetse about executing a child who seems to be on a path to rebellion. Verses that criminalize to the penalty of death intimacies that our society views as potential avenues to holiness. The brutal death of the concubine in the book of Judges, chapter 19. Look it up if you can stomach it. We are a people who inherited a comprehensive trove of sacred text. We do not excise from our public Torah readings verses that make us uncomfortable, but rather we dive into the complexity intent on extracting meaning. As such, this realization of who Hagar and Bilha and Zilpah were, and by extension, what Avraham and Sarah and Jacob and Rachel and Leah had among their kaleidoscope of traits, some of them admirable, some of them less so, it invites us into a weighty challenge. Breaking down a myth is easy once you get an epiphany. Once your moral indignation is awakened. But how do you build it back up? How do you arrive at what is referred to as the second naivete, where you have newfound meaning and even wonder in texts or in stories or even in people who are no longer uncomplicated idols for you? We do it with our parents as we and they age and we get exposed to their flaws. We do it with faith itself when the God talk of second grade no longer satisfies us. And we do it with Breshit when some of the detritus of that venerable text but from a time and an era phenomenally long ago comes to the surface. 
Now, one of the great things about offering a sermon that launches a series that will culminate in a final teaching on Shabbat morning in late November is that I don't have to fully clean up this mess. Rabbi Schatz will be doing that. But seriously, this sermon was to expose a wound so that we can slowly dress it and make of it something of merit. And I do encourage you to go to Rabbi Schatz's upcoming classes. But let me offer some preliminary takeaways. One comes from one of the doyens of Jewish feminism of the last 50 years. Professor Paula Hyman Zichonal Bracha, who taught at Yale and who died far too young about 10 years ago, very early in her career, she wrote an article in the journal Conservative Judaism articulating her approach to weaving together Jewish feminism unapologetically and devotional study of our treasured but troubled text also unapologetically. The weaving itself required weaving. The modern egalitarian reader of text had to read the ancient text empathetically. We have to place it in its context. And we must, in her words, refrain from pointlessly blaming our ancestors for lacking our insights, end quote. In other words, we gain nothing, ultimately, by the chest-puffing triumphalism of merely pointing out that Avraham and Sarah's behavior would be considered criminal and dystopian by today's standards. By only that kind of thinking, Miriam is guilty of child abuse by putting baby Moshe in a basket in a river. That doesn't really get us anywhere. But at the same time, she pointed out that the text can be a prism and an amplifier of scourges in our midst that require the attention and action of the religious person. In her words, quote, until we see that a problem exists, and sometimes we see it exist within the text, we cannot begin to take steps to attain, to attain equality for women, both in Jewish law and Jewish attitudes, end quote. In other words, some of the most important strides that have been made for modern Jewish women have been in reaction to what we are witness to, including and especially in our texts, in the lives and the stories of ancient mythical Jewish women. Hagar is part of our learning and our growth and our putting Jewish conscience and efforts and funds towards ensuring that there are no more Hagars in this world. Her trauma is transmuted to object lesson and we do so not by trouncing the text in which she is found, but by elevating it so that here, even here, it has something to teach us. Aristotle famously taught that it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it, something our society needs a lot more of. I would adapt that and say that it's the mark of the religiously faithful modern to extract wisdom from a painful text and to learn with precision such that we can still emulate Avraham's example of hospitality there, even as we are aghast at his and Sarah's mode of building a family over here. Holding on to and holding close flawed heroes and characters and loved ones, that's an ever-present and sacred challenge 
When a beloved disappoints, whether that beloved is in the here and now or jumping out of a dusty page, the easy thing to do is to jettison, to other, to discard. The holy thing is to wonder about our own reaction, to continue to evolve our own morals and ethics as we are exposed to examples and anti-examples, and yes, to try to draw close. To try to draw close even to those flawed ones. Or else, we're going to be all alone in our supposed pristine chamber. To bring it to Inyana de Yoma, matters of the day, it's one thing to tear down the statue and reputation of Confederate generals decked out in their military slavery-defending finery. It's another thing to tear down the statue and the name and the historical impact of, say, a Thomas Jefferson, who will no longer stand in the chamber of the New York City Council. He stands there now holding not a whip but a quill, neither whitewashing nor valorizing his own ownership of slaves, whose unambiguous evil is far clearer in retrospect than it was centuries ago. But based on an announcement that came out this week, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, no longer makes the cut in New York and elsewhere. And that sends shivers down my spine. It's the kind of thinking that leads to a nation with no heroes, rather than with complicated ones. It leads to a Torah Swiss-cheesed by the scenes, laws, and characters we, renew, we remove because we can't countenance the dissonance with our 20th century society. It leads to a culture in which important literature and well-made TV series can threaten to divorce a man from his faith. I'm married to this text, to Avraham, to Sarah, and to Hagar for the long haul till death do us part. And I turn to the text with humility and I say, I'm listening. Teach me what I still need to learn. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.